So what I want us to do is today is to be like the Israelites who saw David slay Goliath for them. And it says at the end of that story, after David killed Goliath, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. That's what I want us to do today. I want us to be like the Israelites and see a champion overcome the temptations of the devil for us because it is only when you do this that you can actually experience some sort of victory over temptation in your life. Every single person in this room, including me, has experienced temptation and submitted to temptation. You feel what is temptation. It's that seduction that inclination that tug on your heart and your mind towards something that you know you shouldn't do. You know exactly. It's almost, it's, you kind of have this, this rope kind of tied around your heart and you can feel, you know you shouldn't do something and there's this tug on your heart to do it. The tugging, that's the temptation. And we have all submitted to that and only by seeing a champion in our place can we actually overcome that with any sort of victory? Now, we're going to start in the baptism of Jesus. So look at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. The reason why we're going to start in the baptism of Jesus is because the baptism of Jesus and his temptations are meant to be seen together as one story. They're not meant to be split apart. You, have to, you can't look at the one without the other. So look at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This right here is Jesus' inauguration. You have God the Father speaking down to him, giving him the approval that my son is the only one who is qualified for the task of rescuing sinners. And then the Holy Spirit of God comes down upon him to be the very power that can enable him to accomplish this task that the Father has given him. What's strange, though, here's what's really interesting. Matthew and Mark, the other two gospel writers, go straight to the temptations. But Luke inserts this genealogy between the baptism of Jesus and the temptations. That's random. That's strange. So why does he do it? Let's look at the genealogy. Mike preached the genealogy last week. I just want to pull out a couple things to help us see the, the gravity of what Jesus is doing in his temptations. Verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry. Okay. What's interesting about that phrase is that phrase, his ministry, is not in the original Greek. It literally can actually just simply be read, Jesus himself was beginning. That's it. This, the phrase his ministry is not in the original Greek. This beginning is more of a new beginning. It's not just, okay, guys, let's, let's, let's begin the meeting now. Let's begin the workout. This is a, we are, this is like a new era. Something massive, something huge is happening here. It's almost as if 
Jesus Christ is standing on the center of world history, the center stage of world history, about to bring in a new beginning, a new creation. This is massive. And also in the genealogy, if you go all the way back down, all the way down to the bottom of the genealogy, it says at the end of the genealogy, Luke connects Jesus directly to Adam. It says, the son of Adam, at the very end there, the son of Adam, the son of God. The reason why the gospel writer Luke is linking Jesus to Adam is that Jesus is like the second Adam who has come to undo where the first Adam had failed in the first creation. The first creation Adam was representing all of mankind. He was tempted by the devil, submitted to that temptation, and in a sense, brought death to all creation and handed over creation to Satan. And so Jesus is starting a new beginning as a second Adam to take it back, to crush the serpent's head, to crush Satan's head, and take creation back. Let's go on to the temptations. After Jesus gets baptized, the first move is for Jesus to come and, and uh, take on the Prince of Darkness. Look at the first two verses in chapter four. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when the days were ended, he was hungry. A couple things to notice. Look. Notice how it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. This means that as a true human, Jesus Christ was in full and total submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you know this because as it goes on to say, that he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now here's what's strange. Why would God lead Jesus into the wilderness? It's because the first Adam turned the Garden of Eden into a barren, broken wilderness. Scottish preacher Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. Adam turned the garden into a wilderness, and Jesus has gone into the wilderness in order to begin to replant the garden of God, the kingdom of God in this world. But Jesus was not in the same condition as the first Adam. Because it says, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. This is the complete opposite of the first Adam. First Adam had beautiful creation, luscious food, luscious garden, great wife, perfect marriage, direct access to God as his friends. Yet, he submitted to the temptation of the devil, and it brought brokenness to everything. And so Jesus is stripped of everything except for the leading of the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, he's going to conquer Satan with both hands tied behind his back. What this means for you and I, if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you may be led into very, very, very difficult circumstances. Just because you have the Holy Spirit, just because you're a Christian does not guarantee you that you'll be free from difficult, sometimes impossible circumstances. In fact, the very opposite may occur. He may lead you directly into an impossible scenario so that when you have been stripped of everything, and I mean everything, and you only have the Holy Spirit of God in you to sustain you through that, 
and you get on the other side, still loving God, still trusting God, that makes God look insanely glorious and insanely beautiful. He may call you into this. But we need Jesus to do it for us first. Jesus had to prove himself as the perfect son of God who could rescue and save all of us who have failed temptation. I have chosen to call these temptation furnaces. What do furnaces do? They, They test, they prove, and they perfect metal. So in a sense, Jesus is going in the offense. He's going through these temptations. I'm going to call them furnaces because when he gets through them, he's going to prove himself as the only one who is willing and able to save all those who have failed in temptation. He's going through these furnaces to prove himself as the true son of God. Furnace number one. Furnace number one is the offer of satisfaction in disobedience to God. Furnace number one is offer, the offer, Satan offers Jesus satisfaction in disobedience to God. Look at verse three of chapter four. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Here's my question. What's the problem with that? He's hungry. What's, what's such a big deal about Jesus feeding his hungry stomach? The answer has to do with how Jesus responds. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered him, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, in Matthew's account of the temptations, he gives a fuller response to what Jesus says to this temptation. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus also says something that has a lot to do with this, and it's pretty, pretty profound. Chapter 4, verse 34 of the Gospel of John. Jesus, my food, my food, is what? To do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Okay. Jesus' food is obedience to God. This is obviously not talking about physical nourishment. This is talking about spiritual life here. That Jesus Christ believes that obedience to God is the very thing that actually gives him satisfaction and nourishment to his soul. You could say that Jesus eats obedience to God. Jesus knows that the most satisfying thing, the most life-invigorating, joy-filled thing is obedience to God. And so the temptation is simply... Satan is saying, in effect, you are about to die of starvation. You are the son of God. What what are you doing here? Do you want to be satisfied? Disobey. Do the very opposite of what your father is calling you to do. This is ridiculous. And, oh, by the way, Jesus, you know exactly where this obedience is going to lead you. That divine dictator of a dad is going to lead you in obedience straight to a cross. What kind of father would lead you to a cross? Be satisfied and do the very opposite of what he's asking you to do. But Jesus knows that the only thing that could satisfy him is obedience to his father. What we can learn from this 
is that many times we, we have the, sense, the feeling that, that the laws of God, the rules of God are somehow constraining us and are limiting our freedom. So we think the answer to true freedom, true satisfaction, is getting rid of all constraints in our life. Religion, family, relationships. If I just get rid of all these constraints, I'll experience true freedom. That's a myth. Because you're eventually going to submit yourself to some other constraint. You're going to submit yourself to some other restriction. Whether it's to your career, whether it's to your self-promotion, whether it's finding your identity in some other skill that you have. You cannot not be constrained by something. So it's a myth to believe that. And if you do that, you're going to eventually, it's going to eventually lead to some sort of cold, lifeless, joyless moment. And the only way that you can experience any true joy and satisfaction, which every human being wants, is in obedience to the will of God. So furnace number one is past. Jesus is proving to you that he is the only and true son of God who's able to save those who have tried to find satisfaction in disobedience to the will of God. He's the only one that can do this. Furnace number two. Furnace number two is the offer of short-circuiting power and glory. I'll explain, okay? Look at verses five through seven. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The devil offers Jesus all authority and all glory over everything. What's ironic about this temptation is that God has already promised him this. He's already going to get it. After Jesus dies and resurrects, he comes to his disciples and says, all authority has been given to me. He's already going to get it. So what's the temptation? The temptation is that he can find an easier way and a quicker way to get it which is why I say it's a short-circuit path to glory and power. What's a short circuit? According to Wikipedia, so this is definitely right. <laughs> short circuit is an electrical circuit that allows a current to travel along an unintended path, often where little to no resistance is countered. The devil offered Jesus an unintended path of no resistance to a power, glory, and authority. What was the intended pathway? It was the cross. The intended pathway to authority and power and glory for Jesus was the cross. In a sense, Jesus is saying, excuse me, not Jesus, Satan. Satan is saying, do you honestly think that suffering is the way to glory? Do you honestly think that it's worth experiencing all that abuse, those whips, those nails being crucified for your father for the place, in the place of sinners in order to gain glory and authority? This is ridiculous, Jesus. Here's an easier way out. You're the son of God. This is what you deserve. He was offering them the easier way out. But Jesus responds, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
Now, what I, what I really, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine this. It's, you could almost think that Jesus was saying that when he said this, he almost added this as well. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, even if it cost me my life. My father is good. And Satan, we've had this thing planned before you were even made. You weren't even made yet. And we've had this plan. I will worship him. I will follow him. I will obey him, even if he calls me in the fire. What this means for you and me is that some of you might have fallen to the temptation thinking that there's an easier way to some, some, some sort of greater good. And you've taken the short circuit route and you've hurt other people in the process of doing it. You've damaged your character and you have no idea how you got to where you, where you are today because you thought you could get the easy way out. Acts 14.22 says, Through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. A tribulation is any circumstance that is very difficult and adds tremendous negative pressure on your life. The Lord of glory led us to the kingdom of God. He purchased the kingdom through suffering. And so if you're trusting in him, he's calling you along that pathway as well. Satan wants you to believe that there's an easier way out. Furnace number two, past. So Jesus is proving to you once again that he is the true son of God, able to save and rescue those who have submitted to the temptation that there's an easier way out to something greater. Furnace number three. Furnace number three is the offer of total control over circumstances. Look at verse nine. And the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Finally, this, Satan puts Jesus on top of the temple. where this is, this is where God's special presence is. And he says, throw yourself. How, again, some of these temptations, you have to like think a lot to figure out what the temptation is. What's so tempting about throwing himself down from the temple? There are a lot of interpretations of what this temptation is. And I think uh, Daryl Bach, who some people believe is the best commentary out there, I think he gets this temptation best. He says, the premise behind the test is that maybe God will not protect the Son. The temptation is for Jesus to put God in a situation where he has to prove his protection of him. The temptation is, Jesus, manipulate your circumstances. You're obviously moments away from starving to death. Take control. Take matters into your own hands. Do what you have to do. Manipulate God. Make him work for you so he can prove himself to you. You're trying to play God. You're trying to control your circumstances to make yourself, make God prove himself to you. So instead of Jesus being tested by his father, and proven by his father, the temptation is to test God, to do the very opposite. 
And Jesus answers, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus trusted his father and knew that even when it seemed as if all his circumstances were like hell, the cross, that his father was for him and his father loved him and it was part of his perfect plan. How many times do we try to play God? We look at God and we say, I can't stand how you're running my life right now. I cannot believe you would let me get to this point. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to control things. I'm going to control my own life. And I'm going to make you do something. And if you don't come through, God, my faith is gone. You're trying to control God to make, to force him to work, and you're testing him, saying, if you don't work for me, you don't have my faith anymore. Some of you might be saying, and I totally understand it, you don't know what I'm going through. You're right. I probably have no idea what you're going through. But I do know that what Jesus went through for you on the cross was infinitely far worse than you've ever experienced. And what he did is the very source and power that can sustain you through that impossible circumstance that you're in right now. When you see Jesus Christ on the cross, it is the very evidence that he is totally, 100%, 1,000% for you and he hasn't abandoned you. When you see God suffering hell on a cross for you with a heart bursting of love, what fire could you not go through? Because you know that he took the greatest fire for you. Furnace one, two, three, done. All of these temptations, all of these furnaces, Jesus has gone through them, and it's God's giant banner across the sky. My son is the perfect savior. Not even the prince of darkness can stop him. And he's willing and able to rescue and save anyone who is enslaved to temptation if they just put their trust in him. Now what I want to do is, is just simply look at what's the big reason. Why is, why is Satan trying to do this? What's the big reason? And it has to do with verse 13, the last part. And when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What were the other opportune times? I know of two and they have one common interest. The first, Jesus tells his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. What does Peter do? He stands up and says, you cannot do that, Lord. What does Peter say to him? Get behind me, Satan. This is Satan working through Peter, whether P Peter realizes it or not, trying to convince him not to go to the cross. And Satan does this even to the very end when Jesus is actually hanging from the cross. It says this in Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And those who passed by derided him. He's on the cross right now. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You 
who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also, Jesus is throwing dart after dart after dart. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let, come, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Do you really think that Satan was like, I have, I have no idea why they're saying that. I have no, I have no wow, thanks guys. I, I really appreciate that. Of course he's working through those people. Satan is, was offering Jesus much smaller furnaces. Why? To prevent him from the greatest furnace of all. The fire of God's wrath and anger toward our sin. Because Jesus, Satan knew that through the perfect, willing sacrifice of the perfect Son of God, his reign would come to an end and the prisoners would be set free. So the wrath of God, the displeasure of God toward your all... We all have these moments when we, we, when you think of temptation, I, you can think of a few times when you knew what God wanted, you knew it. I know, I know that's what you want me to do, God. And you go, no. Do you have any idea what a dishonoring of God that is? Do you have any idea how much we trample on his glory? What makes you think that the heart of God is not full of displeasure toward our sin? And before you were even made, Jesus and his, the Son of God, he wasn't Jesus yet, the Son of God and his Father planned for Jesus to go to the cross and said, Pour it out all on me. So that those who trust in my goodness would be spared of that. That's what Satan's trying to keep Jesus from. And he went through it without even flinching. How could we ever question the love of God? Look to Jesus and trust him today. Let's... um. Let's come to a close. Um, what does all this mean for us? You have to ask yourself the question, what enabled Jesus to get through these temptations? You can't say, well, he's God. It wasn't that much of a temptation. That's not true. Because he was God, he was able to experience the fullness and greater strength of the temptation. So you can't use that. He, didn't, he wasn't just able to get through the temptations because he was quoting Scripture, because Satan quoted Scripture too. How was he able to get through this? Because of the word he received at his baptism. Shall I read it again? The God of the universe looked at his own son and said, You are my beloved son. With you, 
I am well pleased. That word, nothing else mattered to Jesus. Why is that empowering? Here's an illustration. Imagine a little soccer, a little boy who's a soccer player, right? Imagine the best high school soccer player in the state comes to him and says, wow, you're a really good player. You have lots of potential. He's, he's, getting, he's getting empowered. He's feeling, he's feeling bolstered. He's feeling encouraged. How much more would he be encouraged if Lionel Messi, the greatest soccer player in the world, says the same thing to him? You're a good player. You have lots of potential. His courage, his boldness, is going to skyrocket. Why? Because the greater the worth and honor of someone, the more empowering and courage-filling the words of that person are. So when the person of infinite worth says to Jesus Christ, I am very well pleased with you, nothing could stop him. Why does that matter to you? Do you not know that when a sinner trusts in Jesus Christ, you are considered in Christ? So he can, God can then look at you and actually mean it. I am very pleased with you. I am very pleased with you. If you've got that burning in your heart, whatever is enslaving you right now, whatever you're, you're being tempted by, that nagging thing, when you capture that, get off of me. Get behind me, Satan. Stand firm. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. A couple other things that this means for us. It means that because Jesus made it through these three furnaces, he is, inf- not only is he infinitely honorable and to be praised, but he's infinitely approachable because he can sympathize with you in every way. Like we all know people who are really, we all like, there's these people that we really respect, they're really honorable, they're really um, respectable, but they're really kind of intimidating, you know? So you're, you're, you're really nervous about going to see them because they're not very approachable. On the other side, we also know people who are really, really approachable, but you don't really like respect them. They're just kind of your bud. Jesus is infinitely honorable and infinitely approachable. What a perfect Savior. Lastly, there may be some urges and desires in your heart that you think are out of control. Or there may be some desires in your heart that you think are natural. And you think by obeying those desires, you're simply being true to yourself. If you're honest with yourself, the only reason you're accepting that desire in your heart as acceptable is because the culture around you is telling you to. So really, you're more of a slave to what people think about you than you realize. Whether it's the domineering father who thinks, this is what men got to do. This is what naturally men do. 
or it's the disobedient teenager who thinks it's just natural to be a kid, whether it's same-sex attraction, whether it's, hey, I'm just a guy being a guy and I just like to go after girls, you fill in the blank. We take desires in our hearts and we claim them to be natural and simply true to ourselves. Why would you let the culture tell you what is right and wrong and not listen to what the very creator of men and women says is natural or unnatural, good or bad, right or wrong? And then lift your eyes upon the one who resisted temptation and sin to the point of shedding his blood for you. You might actually, for the first time in your life, experience freedom, joy, and worship. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that your love is um, actually expressed in your son. He came to us and he went through every furnace and came out a proved, perfect savior, willing to save all who would trust in him. I pray for those of us who are, um, have truly fallen to temptation and are feeling condemned and are feeling shame, are feeling trapped, that you as the perfect Father would lift the eyes of their hearts up and see Jesus Christ who did it for them and that their, their hands would let go of the things that they're holding on to and find true life. I pray for those of us who um, are going through a good season that you would make us stand firm, not get proud or arrogant, but continue looking to the one who resists the temptation to the point of shedding his blood for us. I thank you for Jesus, that he's the true son of God, the proven savior who saves all who fall to temptation. I pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.